Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies, produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of the International Studies Association and made available through the Professional Resource Center of ISA's website. I'm Jamie Free, Professor of Global Politics and Director of the Center for Engaged Learning at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with a thoughtful and innovative teacher of international studies. The personal stories of these effective teachers exemplify three foundational principles. First, the primary components of effective teaching are empathy, creativity, passion, and courage. Second, those qualities are accessible to all who are willing to put in the work necessary to become a teacher worthy of their students' promise. And third, doing so is worth the effort. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity in a discipline that is particularly well-suited to engage and empower students as academics and as agents in communities ranging from the local to the global. These conversations are not intended to provide pedagogical recipes to be followed. There are better media for that kind of advice. Instead, the podcast humanizes processes of teaching and learning through the stories of learning to teach. Dialogue is a better way to convey the inefficient and often awkward nature of muddling through such pedagogical learning. Today's conversation is with Seb Kempf of the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. I invited Seb because he's the recipient of the 2020 ISA Deborah Gurner Award for Innovative Teaching. Seb also received the 2013 Australian National Award for Teaching Excellence. He's received numerous awards and recognitions for his teaching at the University of Queensland. And the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace has consistently recognized his massive open online course Media War X is one of the top 10 courses on conflict resolution worldwide. With his UQ colleague, Al Stark, he hosts a podcast on teaching called Higher Ed Heroes. Seb, welcome. Jamie, thanks so much and thanks for having me. So the title of this podcast, which is The Teaching Curve, is meant to evoke learning uh, because Aside from the deceptively obvious point that one is not teaching if someone is not learning, the podcast is intended to show that being an effective teacher really depends on being an effective learner too. So the best teachers approach their constitutive interactions with students with a strong dose of intellectual humility for what students have to teach about the collaborative goal we're both going for, which is their engagement. So Seb, I want to begin by asking you to position yourself as a teacher by telling us about the people who make you one. Who are your students? Ooh, great question to start with. My students at the University of Queensland are usually sort of the top students in the country. UQ is uh, always ranked in uh, the number one, number two university in Australia and in the regularly in the top 50 and 45 globally. So we, 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 you know, it's still a very elitist university. It's in Australia, part of uh, the G8, which is the kind of sandstone type university. So we get like really the top students, which of course allows you to pitch 
the learning and do things in the classroom that you know are quite quite wonderful because you have really responsive really smart really intrigued students in here so uh but you're also teaching this massively open online course and i would imagine that that gives you kind of a, a different range of students as well yeah absolutely and you know like the the, the mooc media war x was born out of a course i teach on campus here um, where we took that, that, that topic and then packed it and repackaged it as a massive open online course. And all of a sudden, uh, you have to cater towards um, a, a, an audience that, has, uh, that is composed of, of a, in a way, a global classroom that's very different from you know, that kind of elitist, top-notch students here. Um, in, in my on-campus course, this is a third-year undergraduate course, so it's quite advanced versus the MOOC where you don't teach to a third year undergraduate students, but you have an age range that goes from mm -hmm. something like 14, 15 to some learners who are like 85 years old, people who have, and we can see this in the statistics, you know, might have a, a PhD who do this, others have a high school degree. Um, and so you have a much bigger diversity. And I wouldn't say that you have to dumb it down, but you have to, of course, pitch it very differently because you have to assume that you're talking to and le facilitate learning with with lay people right so that was in a way a really interesting challenge in and of itself but i think it really helped also uh, change the way i generally talk about mm. these kinds of topics to make them even more accessible more approachable to any kind of audience that's out there ultimately teaching does not work unless you are able to be an effective, uh, if, unless you are a teacher who can empathize with the students, who shows respect to the students, who actually takes them seriously as human beings. So that kind of personal level, that personal relationship, I think needs to be and has to be the foundation of all teaching that we actually do. If you get that wrong, no teaching can be effective and that's sort of one of the, the things i have found out over over the years that uh, i've always taken for granted and maybe that's also the personality i am but i think it's very very clear where you cannot reach students on this personal level where you respect them and they respect you and also trust you then you can't take them into areas where maybe at first they're a bit unsure like why is he taking me there but you need to establish that element of trust and respect so that they actually are happy to go there, mm. that they're perhaps also happy to experiment and be taken into areas where it might occasionally be a bit uncomfortable and certainly challenging, but that's in a way the foundation of every effective learning. Now I'm with you hundred percent on that. I, I think that this point about empathy is I mean, of course, anytime you're communicating with anyone, you have to use a certain medium that both people understand. And at the same time, the kinds of codes and signifiers that you're using have to evoke the pictures in my head in the person I'm trying to communicate with. And, and so that empathy is a really important piece. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about maybe uh, whether you're teaching based on this empathy reflects any of particular experiences you had as a student 
How does your studentness affect your teacherness? I think we, I'm sure everyone tuning in here because it's an ISA podcast, right? We're all in the same boat. I mean, we've all, in a way, gone through our own undergrad and master's degrees, our PhDs. And because we never get trained to become a teacher, we get never trained really to do things in the classroom in certain ways. The only reference point we tend to have are like the people who have inspired us right that we, we we instantly will remember the the really crappy lecturers and tutors and we will of course also remember the really great ones and maybe the great ones that we've experienced are partially responsible for us being where we're at right now so we kind of model things on that and i certainly had a number of really amazing teachers and lecturers and you know there's different elements to this i did my undergrad and master's degree at the london school of economics and political science in ir and had two magnificent lecturers there who did old school type lectures mm -hmm. you know this was at a time when powerpoint was just about to emerge so it was very old school lectures but they were just phenomenally immersive and you could just you were taken on a journey and they had an, a narrative arc in their lectures and across the courses where you were really, where I was looking really forward to these kinds of lectures because they allowed me to really dive into a whole new different world. So there's a lot of approaches to that that I've taken on in my classroom uh, or in my lectures. When it comes to tutorials, it's of course very different or, or seminars, which was very different from, from the lectures then uh, you know, like you, I remember very vividly the types of colleagues who just brought in something different where it's, it was not about the difference, but where as a student, I could instantly feel that this was fine tuned to allowing me to actually learn about a topic in a, in a different way, you know, be this exercise where we had to get up and stand up and move around and, you know, like not having stock standard type of tutorials, but really well thought out types of activities that that help students learn and so that's in a way what i've you know adopted when i first started out and and something that i've i've refined over the years and so one of the the great pieces of advice probably one of the best pieces of advice i've ever been given um, when i started teaching at at university level was to spend five minutes after each lecture and after each tutorial or seminar to actually write down the things that worked and that didn't work and then just save those notes and then take them out the next year so you actually have a good memory of what it is that you might want to change right and then i think very crucially is to actually spend quite a bit of time to think through what it is that you want students to learn and how you want them to learn in seminars and in tutorials. Because as, as lecturers, we are, you know, we're concerned with what's the course profile looking like, what I'm gonna do in the lecture. And then you kind of give a couple of readings for the seminars and that could be the kind of default, I leave it to my tutors. But, and so in a way, maybe the seminars and tutorials become those contact hours between educators and, and students that are the least thought through, mm. but in a way are the most important ones when we think about what they're supposed to do in terms of student learning. Fantastic, that's great. So in the podcast, the, 
higher ed heroes that you host with Al Stark, um, you're quite explicit about avoiding buzzwords, which I appreciate. Uh, I, I was hoping I could get you though to unpack one of the terms that I've seen, associate, seen associated with the way that you're thinking about this. And, and that's the term constructivist pedagogy. Uh, constructivist pedagogy. I think there's, there's different ways it, it, in, in which we can actually see and understand it. I take this to mean that I see students as another, another term of stakeholders in a learning environment that we both share. So it is in a way coming from a position that you as a teacher don't know all the answers. You have not the last wisdom here but that you actually only happen to be a few years ahead of your students, but we're all in the business of learning. And so the centrality here is that you actually learn from one another and, and ideally design your courses around that. Of course, you would always intervene and do things and, and, and you know, if, if things derail, right? Or if there was something that was just a wrong fact that was being stated and you correct, but, I always find, and I'm sure, Jamie, you do the same, that actually, like, if you're testing out various things in your courses, I learn a lot from my students and through these interactions. And so it's a matter of designing that in that particular way. And what I do a lot, to give you more, maybe a more concrete example, is um, in, in my on-campus course on Global Media War and Peace, which is one of my current research areas, I really test out various aspects of what it is that I'm currently researching. So for instance, we meet several times a semester for what I call a media lab. It's like a three hour session where we meet in a collaborative teaching space, 60 students, six big tables, computers everywhere. And we actually engage with real media items. So for instance, um, in the week where we talk about the close collaboration between Pentagon and Hollywood Film Studios. We, um, I, I gave students the uh, documentation that recently has become declassified thanks to Freedom of Information FOIA requests where the Pentagon's entertainment liaison office for the first time in its history had to hand over all the documentation and communications of how they have been engaging with, who they have been engaging with, with regards to film productions. And that's unbelievably stunning. And it's with a colleague uh, in communication studies at the University of Athens in Georgia, Roger Stahl, uh, where we have access to these files and we're doing research around this. So what you basically have is um, over 1,300 uh, films blockbuster films and over 1,300 television series and shows have been produced in the last couple of decades in close collaboration between the Pentagon and filmmakers. And so I made eight of these documents available to students. And I had barely looked into these. I only had a bit of a glance. And some of them are like 50, some of them are 100 pages PDF files that have you know, very clear communications where the Pentagon's ELO office has gone in and said, this line we cannot have, that aspect you need to change. Uh, here are particular wordings that we cannot have. You cannot refer to war crimes, even if they happened in real life. And, they, and it's all documented and they send it back to the filmmaker. The filmmaker sent the new script in, they revise it. I mean, it's an unbelievable source. 
And so, you know, making that available to the students over the course of three hours and say, okay, we've now learned about how this relationship works, how it has evolved over time, what its key debates are in the, in the literature. But we've only so far talked about this, but let's get our hands dirty by looking at those files themselves. So we divide them up into eight different groups and then say, okay, now do a preliminary analysis. We give them instructions. They, had, they can collaborate. We even did this via Zoom this year. So they got like a share a Word a file that they can, they can, they can write on and then, and then present it back to, to all of us, uh, what you found in, the, in this particular movie. Right? And so that's what I mean here is that, you know, you can, you can I think in the, in the greatest possible way, uh, really start involving them into getting a sense for research. And of course, if you can tie it around exciting documents like those kinds of newly declassified files, it becomes a really rich learning experience. Well, and of course, I'm thinking about them going home to their families and saying, I read this document or to their roommates or whatever. And, and that just being something that would, uh, that anybody would be interested in as a way of accessing the discourses and the dialogues that, through which we understand, and most of the world understands what's going on in a war or. And, and, and in the world and in their world. Mm. Like one of the things that is really important, I mean, this goes beyond constructivist pedagogy here, but what I think is very, very good as a tool is to try and break down as many topics as you can and relate them to their own personal life. You know, we've, we've got wonderful ways in which we can uh, actually implement this. The question really is in the age where univer most universities value the research significantly more, the funding significantly more than the teaching is like, you know, how much time uh, can we, should we, and should we wisely invest into the teaching? Uh, one of my colleagues, when I first started out, said that if we are honest with each other, the, the more lasting impact we will have as professionals will probably be our, on our students, not on in terms of what our research does. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, but I think the average person, that's, that's probably the case for the, for the average academic. And, you know, so I think it is something where you can really make a big uh, impact on, on, and I think we're making a, bit, a big impact on the students who we actually teach. And, you know, I think the, the, the first and, and most fundamental thing to, to bear in mind is that if we are not excited about being in the classroom, we can't expect our students to be excited. So you, we, we need to want to be there in order for them to also enjoy what it is that we do. So there is, I think, for, for, for teaching to actually work and for learning to work, we need to be enthusiastic about that. We need to be committed to it. And I think that's, that's really difficult where, you know, the, the message we, we constantly get, I certainly constantly get at my university is like, yeah, that's all really great. But ultimately out of, you know, the, the other dimensions of our job, it's the, it's the least important one. And what at least the research intensive universities are looking for is safe hands in the teaching. And I think that's, yeah. that's in a way, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because we, we all know like writing an article, the, the gratification that comes from that takes a long time. Whereas like the instant gratification you get from 
having been working with your students coming from a lecture that worked really well is mm. something you, you instantly get, right? And so to kind of navigate between this is, is really difficult. And I just, I just enjoy it too much to do a half-assed job. Well, and, and I will make sure that we link to the Higher Ed Heroes podcast in this because I think that that comes across very well. You and Al have set it up as conversations that you would have with people about teaching. One of the most important ways that we can reflect on those aspects of it that and find the reward in there is by uh, collaborating and, and bouncing ideas off and talking about the failures with our colleagues and, and working through those problems. It takes some effort, but um, the, the assertion here is that it's worth it. Yeah, you know, like, and, and that podcast was born out of the, out of a very simple idea, like Al and I have been talking for many years about things related to teaching and learning, um, like really practical things like, oh, hey, I've got this idea I want to do, do you have, an, do you have any, any advice on like how I might actually translate this into a meaningful classroom activity? Um, or, you know, like, and, and those conversations we just found really exciting and actually also found that these are the conversations we never have in mm. our teaching and learning committee. We actually somehow never have at universities. Instead, universities, they, you know, when we talk about teaching and learning, we talk about the budgets, we talk about which courses to call, um, curriculum reform, and we get thrown from higher up downwards, like, you know, spaced learning, uh, flipped classroom, all these kinds of buzzwords that no one really understands what they mean. But we, at least Al and I believe that just sitting down and talking about what people practically do in their classroom, be this a small exercise, be this sort of a big design kind of component is really where it's at and where you can really learn things in, a, in, an, in an easy way. And where there's always something that whilst it might not be your discipline, whilst it might not be your topic, you can, you can adapt and adjust to your course. And it made us better teachers. And so we had this idea, hey, why don't we actually turn our lunchtime conversations over coffee and sandwich into a podcast where, okay, we don't munch a sandwich there, but we do exactly the same and kind of share it around. Fantastic. Uh, I, I can't think of a better way to end than with those kinds of, uh, it's a call, it's a call to action. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's really what all of the, both your, the higher ed heroes and this podcast are trying to do, which is to let people know that if they're passionate about teaching, they're willing to invest the energy in, into it. There are other people out there who are doing it and recognize it in disciplines and across disciplines. So I, I wanna thank you, Seb, uh, uh, sharing that wisdom with us and, and the perspective and the passion and the thoughtfulness about your teaching, that really makes a difference. Um, I think that it really exemplifies the idea, which is that every time you teach, you should be learning something. Learn something every time you teach. Yeah, touch someone, right? So that they actually leave a different person from who they were when they entered. Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, I will, like I said, make sure that people get linked to the work that Seb's been doing, both in the podcast and some of the publications uh, about teaching, because I think that they're very valuable. So 
Thank you, and we'll see you next time. As promised, here's Seb's information about High Red Heroes, the podcast he does with Al Stark, and uh, it's hosted on buzzsprout.com. You can also reach it through Twitter at High Red H. The other information here is about one of the articles he recently published on teaching the MOOC and his most recent book through Cambridge University Press. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. If you have any comments, suggestions, other people we should interview, please reach out at Teaching Curve through Twitter or by email, teachingcurve at isonet.org. I want to thank in particular the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative Steering Committee and Christy Belton and uh, acknowledge that the music is Mungu from John Bartman. Remember everybody, learn something every time you teach.